This podcast contains sensitive topics such as murder, violence, and sexual abuse. All right, so today we're going to be talking about the JonBenet Ramsey uh, murder. For those who don't know, this was a really prolific um, murder that happened in 1996. JonBenet Ramsey was a six-year-old girl who was found uh, dead in her parents' basement. Um, so we're going to be going over the case, the timelines of the things. We're going to go through the evidence with a fine-tooth comb and go into the many theories that developed over the years with this case. So for starters, my name is Sam Moravec Parsons. I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. I want to note immediately that I am not a detective. I'm not in the police force and I never have been. Um, nothing. I'm in no way qualified to investigate or solve a, you know, murder um, but we, we do want to talk about the things that we have gathered through a lot of research, through reading books from detectives and psychologists and, um, kind of go through the very common misconceptions in this case and kind of talk about what is factual and what is subjective. My name is Lindsay Winstrand. I have a Bachelor of Science in Mathematical Biology. I have a basic understanding of forensics, but I am by no means a trained expert, and I am also not affiliated with any law enforcement. Neither of us have a law enforcement background that would qualify us to investigate or solve a case, but we're here to discuss ideas, theories, and try to decipher some of the evidence and... Basically just, you know, kind of go over this case that is really, you know, it's a really popular case among true crime communities, and within that, you see a lot of conflicting information, um, a lot of misinformation, or even people still holding on to evidence that has also been like deemed not reputable anymore. And not reliable or just completely irrelevant. And uh, it's, that's one of the things about this case that makes it so interesting is you have to not only weave through different um, narratives and different perspectives, you also have to look at what facts have actually been disputed or corrected or even omitted. Yeah. I mean, it's been 24 years since this happened and, you know, there are constantly either new developments or going back to the, the original evidence and saying that that wasn't good enough or it's disputed now. Um, and which is one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was because, you know, the case of John Benet Ramsey has stuck with me since I was a little kid. You know, I was only a few months younger than her. And when it happened, you know, my mom was really attached to the case, like many parents were at the time who had young children. Um, but, you know, when I was looking into this for the hundredth time in my life, I've noticed that there's no season long podcast about it. Right. And I was like, oh, man, you know, you you read all these books and you watch all these documentaries and you talk to people and they have kind of a general misconception of, you know, what happened. And it's like, well, you know, someone's got to get on the microphone and talk about this. Right. Like and talk about what what's real and what's not what's subjective and what's 
And I personally love listening to podcasts about murder. That's just, you know, that and I've listened to multiple podcasts about Jean Benet or YouTube videos. And I think, you know, it's long overdue for this to really be brought to life in a podcast setting. All right. So now that we know like why I'm super interested in this case, why don't you, you know, take a second to discuss like why you are. You know, I wasn't really interested in this case um, until you brought it up to me. I think it was like a year ago. You were pitching to me this theory and I thought you were absolutely insane. And you kept talking about pineapple and I, I didn't understand why. And I, I just thought it was totally ridiculous. And I dismissed it because I had understood um, the family has been 100% cleared. And that's what the media always says. The DA apologized and they've been 100% cleared. They say this all the time. And then I started actually listening to the case um, because it popped up as one of my suggestions. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll show Sam. I know a thing or two about Jean Benet. And I literally didn't know right. most of this stuff. And a lot of the stuff I did know was based on Lou Schmidt's theories. Right, right. Which, yeah, so, which go along with the um, narrative that the DA likes to push. Right. But anyway, I, so I'm interested in this case because um, it makes absolutely no sense. It's like the more you learn the less you know about the case, the less things make sense, the less things line up. Well, and, and you know, that's exactly why I've like gotten such an obsession over it. And it's funny. And I'm glad you talked about how you like disagreed with me at first, because, you know, I mentioned doing this podcast to a couple of friends of mine and they were both like, ah, yeah, we're not really into that case. We know what happened. So like, who cares? And I was like, okay, like what happened? And then they both gave two totally different accounts. And I'm like, yeah, see, it's interesting that everyone who views this case is like, I 100% know what happened. It's like, well, I got to tell you, I don't even know what, like, what my main theory is because, like you said, like, the more you investigate it, the more confusing it becomes. Right, and I definitely have uh, been through multiple ideas of what's happened, um, really landed on different suspects that have been, you know, uh, investigated mm -hmm. but it's it's hard because there's so much information that you get and just one detail can throw a whole theory off or can yeah. completely change someone um as a suspect well so. and yeah and pretty much every time i call you and i'm like what about this theory there's always something there's always one like thing piece. Yeah. yeah um so let's jump into it shall we all right, so let's do a little bit of a background on the Ramseys themselves. So the, the main characters here are John Ramsey, Patsy Ramsey, Burke Ramsey, and John Benet Ramsey. Burke and John Benet were the children of John Ramsey and, and Patsy Ramsey. And just a, just a real quick background about this family is that you have John who kind of like worked his way through the, the computer software world, right? And, you know, developed and partnered with the company for Access Graphics, which ended up becoming a multi-million dollar company. Um, and then for Patsy, you know, she was like, I, you know, I really enjoyed what um, John Ramsey's friend said about her is that she was basically his Jackie O, which for those who don't know is also Jackie Kennedy. <laughs> I didn't. I did not know that. I know you didn't, <laughs> but um, which I think perfectly embodies them, right? You have this like well-to-do, like sharp guy. He's very charming. He's attractive, and then you have this like beautiful woman who mm -hmm. was in the pageant scene, um, had all these gifts and talents. She even had a degree in journalism, and then they have these two beautiful children 
one of which is John Binet, who was also doing pageants and things like that. And as we know, the the pageant world for John Binet is one of the the bigger reasons the media really took off with this case. Yes, I would say Patsy Ramsey was uh, a triple threat. She was brains, beauty, and a body. She also, um, you know, was a power couple with John Ramsey, and I believe Access Graphics was meeting their $1 billion mark that same year that Jean Benet was murdered, unfortunately. So I guess we could talk about the pageants a little bit. Um, yeah, because, you know, before we get, we get into, like, the night, like, what happened and everything like that, like, just a kind of a quick synopsis over the pageants, because though we'll, we'll extrapolate that on that a lot more later, but arguably the, the, the pageant scene is one of the reasons the media really took off on the 24-7 news cycle with the story. Because it sensationalizes the case a little bit. Yeah, of course. And it also, like, opens up a lot of rhetoric for theories and... You know, and it, it wraps up that creepy pedophile down the street that's watching your kids' story that we, you know, all parents are terrified of. Right. It's, it's their worst nightmare, right? And, you know, for John Bonet specifically, in the 90s, you know, you, you see these clips that were, were played on the news of her, you know, talent portion of these events. Um, and people really took off with that, being like, why does this child have makeup why is she wearing that specific outfit why is she doing these like demure poses with her pursed lips and looking over her shoulder seductively when she's a kiddo right like you know it's america's biggest fear you know sexualizing children yeah it's a taboo it's definitely a cultural taboo um one of the reasons i'm interested in this case as well is because i did beauty pageants as a child with my sisters and I think I have sort of a unique perspective on pageants because I actually did them and I do think there are good and bad things about them. Um, Jean Benet would do these type of pageants that um, we refer to in the pageant world as glitz. Some pageants are more natural and you're expected to come very naturally, no makeup, under 13. Um, you're supposed to wear more uh, modest clothing and that's different than the glitz pageants, which are, I think, more common in the South. I mean, you'll see them in the North too, but they're, they're called glitz because they're, they're wearing dresses with diamonds and sequins and pearls, and they've got their hair all done. They've got fake nails, fake eyelashes, fake tan, um, full face foundation, fake teeth. I definitely saw a girl walk off stage and pull off her fake teeth because she was like nine and she was missing teeth because she's, Oh, you know, that's okay. Right. Yeah. And I've seen little babies who are six months old wearing fake eyelashes and lipstick. It's, it's disturbing, but I don't, I think that, you know, one of the things uh, Patsy Ramsey seemed to appreciate about pageants is it teaches you to be poised. It teaches you how to handle yourself in front of a group of people and, um, I definitely think that's a good thing about pageants, but I, I don't think it's good to teach your daughters to uh, measure themselves against other women f based on beauty. And notice mm -hmm. I'm saying women. I'm, I'm, I mean, Jean Benet was very young, yeah. but it's not uncommon. Like well, one of the. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, she was on the path for Miss America. Like, that was like the whole thing is that Patsy yeah. wanted her to 
win Miss America, a title that she was unable to win. Um, cause that, so that comes into play too. So yeah, like when you say women, like we get it, you know, like the, the pageant world, it, it doesn't seem like a, it ends as children a lot of times. It's a hobby that seems to carry on um, to make it to the big leagues, which is Miss America. And, you know, yeah, like, of course, it, like, offers scholarships and um, opportunities yeah. and, and stuff like that. So I don't think that's why people do it. I think people do it be- for vanity reasons. Yeah. And that's my opinion. I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I think it's more like – I also think – I think for my family – my mom thought we were amazing and she wanted to show us off and she wanted right. us to know how amazing we are. So I think, you know, and I, I think you can go into pageants and come out stronger, but I definitely think most people go in and probably come out weaker. Yeah. And, you know, with this case, there's like so many things that, you know, we'll dedicate a lot more time to and the pageant will definitely be one of them. Um, what do you say we uh, go over what happened? So, the night of the of Christmas night of 1996, the Ramsey family was at a Christmas party at their good friend Fleet White's house, Fleet White and Priscilla White. They left the party around 8.30 p.m. They dropped off some gifts on the way home, and it is said that they got home around 10 o'clock and put, Patsy put John Benet Ramsey to bed. Um, the second they got home. So John Bonet went to bed at 10 p.m. And then in the next morning, Patsy woke up at 5.30 in the morning. And as she was walking down the stairs, she noticed a two and a half page note on the stairwell. Um, so she claimed she didn't read the note in full. So what she saw was um, Mr. Ramsey listened carefully. And then within the next you know, few sentences, it basically says, we have your daughter. And so, allegedly, she runs back up the stairs, looks into John Bonet's room, and she is missing. Um, John comes downstairs and looks at the note as well, and then they make the, you know, phone call to the police. Um, I'm going to go ahead and play the the 911 call. For anyone listening, um, I know some people like to hear 911 calls and some people would prefer not. It's about 20 seconds long. Um, please feel free to skip it if not. Um, but for those who are, are sticking around, this is the 911 call that Patsy made to the police that morning. 
Okay, so the 911 call. Right, so you can definitely say Patsy appears frantic. Yeah. And I know it's it's difficult to tell someone's guilt or innocence based on a 911 call, even though they are routinely used in court. Um, but I will definitely get into the dispatcher's uh, recollection of events and some of the analysis on the sounds that occur at the end of the call when Patsy Ramsey's under the impression that she's hung up. Yeah, yeah, we won't we won't spend too much time on that right now. For now, um, right now, for what we know, two parents woke up, they saw a ransom note, the child was gone, and so they called the police. Um, however, it, within the ransom note, and we're going to do an entire episode on the ransom note, it's like one of my favorite topics of this case, <sighs> but in the ransom note, it says, I, I know, it's not I Lindsay's hate, favorite. I, know. I hate the ransom note. I hate the ransom note. <laughs> Is it because it's, it's basically like reading a Harry Potter book? It's like so No, long. it's because it's a red herring and I really believe it's it's mostly nonsense. I think, you know, someone spent a lot of time in that house writing a note that was just pure nonsense. And it, yeah. it's but go ahead. It's like reading the lyrics to I Am the Walrus by the Beatles. Oh my god, <laughs> it's literally like that. It's like all the fans are like, what does this mean? What does this right, mean? Right. Literally. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right on that. A lot of, yeah. So we'll get in on that. But in the ransom note, it did say, you know, like, don't call the police. Don't call friends. Don't call. Don't let the banker know what's going on. And that's important because immediately as she hung up with the police, she, Patsy Ramsey, called her friends and invited people over and you know when we get into this timeline i'm gonna say this like over and over again and i know Lindsay doesn't completely agree with me but the things that happened between 5 52 with the 911 call and one o'clock when the body is found is complete chaos to me and i think that the police just really had no control over the scene and I do think it's one of the many reasons that this case remains cold. So I do agree that the scene is a hundred percent chaos and was not controlled, not managed and certainly compromised, but I don't think the case wasn't salvageable. I think the real failure um, to justice in this case comes well after the crime scene is, uh, I guess, just compromised. I, I would say more of the disgrace is what happens afterwards. That's the part that I, like, I get angry about it. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's a, a murder investigation that turned very political very quickly, and it did take away from the case itself. So Patsy calls up some friends, um, and I think it's the Fernies that arrive first, Okay. Um, I, I have the timeline. Yeah, let's, let me double check that. Okay, so, the well, do you mean out of the officers that arrive? No, I'm talking about the Ramsey's friends. Okay. So it would be the Whites that arrive first. Okay, I wasn't sure if it was the Whites or the, the Fernies, because they, they come so quickly and close together that it can be kind of muffled. But either way... Fleet White and Priscilla White, the people who had the party the night before, show up at the Ramsey house, I mean, I think like a minute after police did. Um, so this is, if you listen to read any anything on the case, 
every source I've ever read has been like, that was mistake number one, was the police letting literally anybody into that house. But they make that mistake not only once, not only twice, not only three times, but a total, Over and over. Just over and over. I mean, they, they might as well let the paper boy in, like the milkman, like just everyone come on, like- it's I a mean, party at the Ramsey's. <laughs> like, literally, though. Like, I mean, just an insane amount of people. Yes, it's it's so crazy that I had to look at multiple sources to come up with the list of people that came onto the scene. Because yeah. there's so many, they leave them out. Because it's yeah. just not worth mentioning some people. So, Rick French is the first police officer on the scene, and he comes at 5.59. And then at 6.01, Carl Vetch and Linda Arndt come. But then at 6.03, so two minutes after the police arrive, Fleet and Priscilla White come. And then at 6.10, which is now nine minutes after the police arrive, two more friends come, and that's John and Barbara Farney. So already exactly. we have, yeah, yeah. So we, already we have four people who are not the Ramses and are not associated with the police in this house, which is huge because... It, I I wish I could say that they walked in, sat on the couch, and did nothing that entire time that they were there. But Fleet White walked in and immediately starts looking around, right? He's just like, what's going on? And I was well, he about he this. is the lead investigator on the case. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, he really should be on the payroll at this point. <laughs> I mean, he walked in and the police are, are still scratching their heads and he's he is like beelining it around that house. He's like, it's where so, is this little girl? It's so funny because I was looking at this timeline and it's it's talking about how the officers are on scene and it's like Fleet White investigates the basement. Fleet White investigates <laughs> the train room. It says like over and over, Fleet White investigates this. Well, and White. <laughs> so I was thinking about this earlier and... I mean, obviously, there's like a lot of reasons. It's 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 bad to have people just like walking around the house because they're tampering with evidence and like things like that. But how do the police know that these four people, one of the four people, weren't the kidnapper themselves? They don't right? actually know that. That's the yeah. thing. Right. So you're just like letting people walk around willy nilly, like and potentially there's... tamper with a crime scene. Yeah, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you know. They don't know. They know nothing at this point. And they have welcomed four strangers to the police department into that house already. It, it's not starting off as a great investigation. And like a little bit of a spoiler alert, it does not get better. Wait till you hear about what the victim advocates did. Oh my God. You are obsessed with, with dragging the victim advocates. They were just trying to help. I'll get to it, but I'm, I'm not going to be nice about it. That's okay. just like all there is to it. So. so essentially, we've got, you know, four friends of the Ramses. We've got two uniformed officers and one detective on the scene. And um, now by 630, Detective Patterson is arriving. Then 640, Officer Weiss. These are police officers. Sue Barklow, Sergeant Paul Reichenbach. Um, mm -hmm. Then come the victim advocates. Um, the Reverend pops in. At seven thirteen, <laughs> obviously, um, for moral support because keep in mind it's a kidnapping, um, right? Then, then several other officers to follow, and then finally John's uh, kids from his first marriage. Who so you know when the police arrive and uh, you know all these officers and party goers um, are in the house. 
they th- <laughs> so they're looking at this as a kidnapping and they did check the perimeter of the house and they did like a loose sweep around the house but they didn't secure any of the areas of the house including her bedroom so at this point none of the areas are secured um the reverend is there two victim advocates multiple friends the family um and plus it's um the time of year where police officers with seniority are going to be getting the time off for Christmas. So they were right. uh, hellaciously understaffed for this. Yeah. So Stephen Thomas, he's a, det- he's one of the detectives on the case that comes in later. Um, Lindsay and I both read a book from him and he, you know, made the point to say that, you know, this is Christmas time in Boulder, Colorado, like a, a town that is not used to major crimes. Right. And he was saying, you know, like any, any officer who could be equipped to handle this really is, has been in the force for a long time and has seniority. So they get to choose who's working in the holidays, essentially. So these people, these officers showing up, like, we had to cut them at least a little bit of slack because they were completely ill-equipped for this situation to begin with. Right. It's almost like they were destined to fail. I remember in this book by Lawrence Schiller that I'm reading, um, when the call comes in and they think it's a kidnapping, the officer that attended the uh, kidnap seminar was off for the holidays and they didn't even know where her materials were that could have potentially helped them how to handle a kidnapping. Yeah. And this little note that I have um, in the case files in Stephen Thomas's note says, Contrary to normal protocol, the police did not seal off the defendant's home with the sole exception being the interior of John Bonet's bedroom at 11 o'clock a.m., which is five hours after they arrived. In other words, any person in the Ramsey house could and often did move freely throughout the home. Um, and it was also stated in his book that, you know, in, in cases of a kidnapping, police are supposed to show up to the house in a unmarked car so that if the kidnapper's watching, they don't see a police car pull up. And they are to take the victim's families to the police station to get them out of the house in case that there could still be danger, right? Um, not only to, like, you know, ensure their safety, but to also, like, secure the crime scene really quickly so that DNA and evidence, like, stays put. But also to make sure you, like, keep an eye on the family because, as we will find out later, um john ramsey likes to go on little walks and at some point during this he is unaccounted for so like these are there's a lot of mistakes that that lead up to it um so now we've got all of the officers on the scene we've got the reverend um on the scene and they are waiting for a kidnap call as the ransom note stated we're going to call you between 8 a.m and 10 a.m the next day. Well, they don't actually know if the ransom note was delivered on December 25th and the next day would be referring to the 26th or if the ransom note was delivered on the 26th that morning very early and the next day would be the 27th. Right. And I mean, this probably isn't how it went, but in my brain, the police are like, all right, we'll just like sit here, wait for a phone call. If it doesn't come, we'll try again tomorrow. But like, I know that that's, you know, not how it went. But meanwhile, while the police were looking around the house and 
talking with John and Patsy, the real hero, Fleet White, um, starts looking through the house. And he said that, you know, his daughter, he once thought his daughter went missing. And he called the police and everything. And she was found, like, hidden in a cabinet. And so I think... um, you know, for Fleet White, he was like, I'm going to look around. Maybe she's hiding, you know, like maybe this isn't real, you know, doing like detective work and stuff, yeah. and trying to, 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 to get rid of the option. Secure the crime scene. And <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, while this is happening, he and John did go into the basement and were looking for points of entry. And there is a broken window in the basement that John had broken previous to this because he locked himself out of the house um, so Fleet White, literally it says that Fleet White went and reported back to the police officers that the only point of entry that he found was the, the window. Um, so, hey, Fleet White, can we please get your report of your findings? Right, right. <laughs> um, so as the morning goes on, around 8.21, the three-page ransom note was sent to the police station and this is when they asked the Ramseys for their writing samples um in which they provided notebooks and pens for did they i don't think okay i'm not 100 percent sure about this because i know patsy ramsey gave her handwriting sample um in the home of the da's office that was uh, here later. Have, that was later so was it already known handwriting samples yeah, they did give um, handwriting samples on the scene because that's how the police found the notebook. Oh. So essentially... Which the Ramses in Lawrence Schiller's book, the Ramses voluntarily gave the yeah. notebooks to the police. Yeah, so they, they did collect multiple handwriting samples from them. Um, but the initial handwriting sample, they gave... Patsy Ramsey got them two notebooks for John and her to write on. And it's later seen that the ransom note was written on in Patsy Ramsey's notebook. And we'll in multiple get, drafts. Multiple drafts, yeah. And again, when we get into the ransom note episode, which will be episode number two, very excited. Um, we'll go over all of that a little bit more and why it is important to the case. But what I want to bring up really badly right now is right now we're talking between the hours of eight o'clock and nine o'clock a.m which is my favorite period of time because this is when the victim advocates start what do you think they're doing right before i before i jump into this if i were to say what do you think that victim advocates are there to do you'd probably say like comfort the family not interfere with the investigation right get them water if they need to make sure they're like eating like making sure they're taken care of you know take them on a walk if need be well these victim advocates they really went the extra mile and started cleaning the kitchen i i keep this is something i just can't get over and i know that you told me to get over it but as we know and we don't know this yet but later on in the story, we do know that the kitchen is a vital part of this investigation. And all of it was just wiped clean with pledge and bleach from the, <laughs> did, they, did, they, did they find like people who were like, oh, we do victim advocate and a cleaning service. Like, let us just show up in our cleaning van. Well, like, <laughs> like I'm not a victim advocate. I'm the maid. Right. Like, <laughs> why? So 
that's mistake number 17 that the, that the police made. That, that. That's been happening within the first hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's like two hours later. Like, yeah. So let me just quick, quick recap. Police get there. They walk around a little bit. Fleet White goes and investigates the entire scene and looks for points of entry. Um, he looks for motives. He looks for any possible answers. Um, they coach John on what to say in, in the phone call that they're expecting. And they're waiting for the phone call now. Yeah. And as, you know, they're writing their, taking their handwriting samples, the cleaning service. I mean, um, the victim advocates are cleaning the kitchen, just wiping down all those nice fingerprints. Um, Scrub a dub. Yeah, exactly. Just throwing things away. Maybe they'll take out the trash too, but um so that's what's happening so far the 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 scene i mean obviously we can joke and we can laugh but you know it's terrible like the scene was absolutely there was no the scene was compromised from 603 a.m and it just continues to get tampered with and compromised and whenever i i look into this i just get so frustrated about it i just get so upset because it just yeah you talk now because I'm just getting really upset about the whole victim. Yeah, advocacy. I'm just taking it all in. Um, okay, so I'm trying to find the victim advocates in the timeline. I, I see your notes about the victim's advocate. You're like screaming in font. Okay, so once we hit nine o'clock, I mean, this, I mean, yeah, I guess we could go into this. So once we hit nine o'clock, Detective Jim Byfield was contacted by Sergeant Bob Whitson and requested to assist in the investigation of a kidnapping. So the police had actually put a trap on the phone, which is different than a phone tap where you just listen. The trap is gonna collect data about um, the caller ID, uh, which towers the cell phone is using. Well, I guess in this case, they don't really use cell phones, but um, by the time it's by 9.30, they're actually arranging ransom amount which happens to be $118,000, which is a curious amount. Yeah, we'll get into that um, um, later. But yes, it, it is. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's odd automatically, right? Because he's a multimillionaire and someone's asking for $118,000. for It's a high-risk crime for a very low payout. Oh, certainly, certainly. And... Um, for a criminal mastermind that might put something like this together that just doesn't really seem to make any sense but once so one of the common criticisms is that they focused only on the ramses right from the beginning but actually right from the beginning they went to access graphics detective everett and detective byfield were interviewing people and seeing if anyone was involved in this um once the deadline that the call was going to come in 8 to 10 a.m. Nobody says anything to Detective Art about the fact that no phone call has even come in. Like, you, you know, you'd think they're waiting by the phone for the kidnappers to give the instructions and nobody even says, huh, I guess they're going to call tomorrow. Or, right. Hmm. And I mean, that just showed like the kind of the lack of communication in this case, because, you know, in Steve Thomas's book, he also mentioned that they were really worried about people tapping into their phone or their um walkie talkies and and so instead of contacting each other via radio they were calling each other on the phone um which takes more time yeah it's very smart but it also 
it also like hurt the communication level a lot. And the reason that this is significant is that, you know, while this is going on, the police department is, is talking with the FBI because they are the ones that handled um, high profile kidnapping. Right, high-profile kidnappings. And so that lack of communication is just wasting time for all of the parties involved. Well, we have some good news. Finally, at 10.30 a.m., uh, Jean Benet's bedroom is actually sealed off by... Oh, thank goodness. Did Fleet White do that? <laughs> no, actually, um, Detective Art and Fred Patterson finally sealed off the, the bedroom, which would be at least the crime scene because that's where the child would have been allegedly abducted from. Right. Um, yeah. You would hope that they would do that immediately. I think everyone can tell right now how bitter I am about all of this. I'll try to be a little bit more objective uh, moving forward. Yeah. I just, I really think the police were told to handle this family with kid gloves. And I think a lot of what they were doing was probably viewed as the correct thing to do. Yeah. Well, At, and- in that context, And, you know, moving on objectively, and I'm not going to get all heightened about this, but around 1040, um, the detectives lose John Ramsey for an hour and a half. No big deal. It's it's fine. Um, So, you know, you and I I talk about this this part a lot because with so many people in that house, I guess it, it, it would be easy to, like, let someone slip between your fingers i guess but you know john being unaccounted for is such a serious thing because one he could be in trouble like you know if there's a kidnapper out there it could still be a very dangerous situation especially because this house is huge this isn't like a ranch right this is a mansion it's a seven thousand square foot house that is not easily accessible either um so they lose john so that's a safety risk right then and there but also, like, going with the whole theme of tampering with evidence, at this point, we don't know what is evidence and what's not. And we can't just let people, you know, disappear. And wander an through the and home half. and decide that for themselves. I mean, we and, don't even know if he was in the house. Well, and, and not to mention, if they're waiting for a ransom call, what if they ended up calling late? Right. You know, like they're going to, this letter is targeting John Ramsey, Mr. Ramsey. That's who they're going to want to speak to. So can you imagine if one of the victim advocates picked up the phone? (laughs) I'm just in here cleaning the kitchen. I'm cleaning. (laughs) So shiny clean. Right. Like, and so, yeah, I mean, and everything I've read, no one has any idea where John Ramsey went. So Steve Thomas, in his notes, he says, John Ramsey left the house to pick up the family's mail, except for the mail is delivered through a slot, right. not at a in, like, in the door, communal yeah. box. Yeah, so, I mean, some people, I don't know what that means. I I don't know how that got put into the I've mix. read theories that he left to pick up the ransom amount, which, like, could No, be thing, that's but, not true because um, they were actually collecting the ransom amount for him. Right, that's what I, They were yeah, organizing is- it. And they, because they, anytime there's a big high profile kidnapping, you're not giving them your money. You're giving them government, like, I don't even know if it's real money, to be honest. I don't know how I have no idea. It's tracked money. I know that. Yeah. Well, all money Um, is technically tracked money, but. Well, yeah, but. I know what you're saying. So, and this is, you know, probably the most crucial part of the investigation because when Detective Arndt um, finally sees John again, she notices that he's by himself and he seems very anxious 
And so she tells him and Detective Fleet White, I mean, um, his friend Fleet White, <laughs> to search the house top to bottom. Okay. And the, the police officers who recount the story always make a big deal out of the fact that they said top to bottom. They all do that. They go, they, I'm gesturing top to bottom. Because what would you think if someone said top to bottom? You'd think, okay, let's go to the top. And then we're going to the bottom. Right. But it's but more of an expression. It's an expression. Like if you said, oh, they're running round and round, you're not going to actually be running round and round. Like right. that's an expression. Well, so, my dad used to say, like, you better clean your room top to bottom. I don't like start with the ceiling. Start with the ceiling. <laughs> I mean, I'll call my victim advocate. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't expecting that to be that funny. Um, I'm always funny. My apologies. I'm actually an amateur comedian. Yeah, amateur. Whoa. So anyway, uh, luckily Linda Ard was able to locate John Ramsey and she's, I act, when I heard Linda Ard's interview about it, she, I think she said her superior told her to tell Fleet White to get him to do it or something. Well, yeah, cause but she was, she was massively thrown under the bus during this whole investigation. Um, so she had some, some beef with, you know, how this was reported. It's impossible to know. But it's not like she told him to go find the body. She said, well, yeah. just, go poke around. Let me know if anything's missing. All righty. Well, like, the criticism of that is that someone should have been accompanying them. Because again, think about this from the police view. You have no idea who this kidnapper is. It could be Fleet White and it could be John Ramsey. And you're sending them off to do whatever. You should have been accompanying so them. Crazy. Because so then crazy. what ended up happening? Um, what? Oh, shush. <laughs> What end, what ended up happening? Okay, so I'll tell you what ended up happening is so Fleet White is like, come on, buddy, let's go like look the house for points of entry again, even though I've secured this house fourteen yeah. times now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then John was like, cool, cool, cool. So they beeline it to the basement where John goes directly to the wine cellar. Now, before I get into what happens when he opens the door, to give an idea of the layout of this house is that. Again, this is like not a ranch. It's not clear cut. Um, the the basement is set up almost like a maze. Like I've seen like pictures of it, and I've seen the the blueprints of the house. And you know the the wine cellar. It looks to me almost like a utility closet. Like the way it's set up, it, it's like not, you'd open it and the boilers in there. Right. Ex- like literally, exactly. Like right. exactly. And there are so many rooms and doors in the basement that. You know, people always make every book I've read about it has always made a, a key point to be like the wine cellar is not an easy find. It is a seven thousand square foot house. The wine like, we don't even know how John found it. Like literally, though, right? <laughs> and but so it makes it a little bit more impactful when I say that. You know, they go downstairs and allegedly John beelined to the wine cellar. He opened the door and allegedly did not turn on the lights. That's something we'll get into. But he screams, my baby, and turns on the lights, and the body of John Benet Ramsey was found in the wine cellar. And then he says, I found her. Right, I found her. And he picks up the body. As he's doing this, Fleet White reaches to touch the child's ankle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he Which says is another reason that a they shouldn't have been there. should have been with them right well she was ice cold so obviously she's deceased right and um i think and i remember 
John Ramsey describing it in the ABC interview he gave on that documentary that he opened the door and he was relieved to see her, but then he went to pick her up and he immediately knew that she was not alive. And she had duct tape on her face, rigor mortis had set in, so her arms were stuck above her head with loose bindings, nylon cord. Yeah, yeah. So they they find the body and her, like you said, her arms are up over her head. There's nylon cord wrapped around her wrists and around her neck. They even make a point to say that a necklace that she got for Christmas was tangled up in the cord and the cord was attached to a, was tied to a broken, um, paintbrush, paintbrush. Thank you. I like the, the word paintbrush fell out of my vocabulary just now. Um, and yeah, so this is, this is what we have. It's tragic. Um, and, and you know, a lot of people fault, john for immediately picking her up i personally think that it's almost habitual right like you it's you, instinct it's like instinct um it would not have happened if there was there was a police escort with them hopefully. right you know? right like you see in law and order when they're they find the child who was kidnapped and it's dead or um the parent goes running to go you know hold their child for the last time and they're literally holding the parents back because anything they do will unintentionally destroy evidence yeah and up until this point like outside of the ransom note the actual physical body is the biggest piece of evidence right um that like that you can like touch and see and you know things like that yeah actual Right, yeah, like actual concrete physical evidence. physical evidence. There you go. And I know I, I, these simple I, words are just falling out of my brain. Yeah, you've had I got a day. Yeah, oh my god, I have a long day. Yeah. So then he, you know, takes the body upstairs where he, you know, lays her on the ground, and then this is another thing that Linda Arndt gets really upset about um, with the handling of this case um, is that they the police department claimed that Linda Arndt then picked up the body and put. John Bonet in front of the Christmas tree. She claims she didn't do it. Well, um, she was placed on the floor in the living room, kind of like right where everyone's walking around. Yeah, so yeah. they're I think they're trying to move her out of the way so people aren't walking all over the body nearby, you know. So another interesting thing is Linda Art actually said on national television three years after this whole ordeal that when John Ramsey brought the body up with him she says and this is a direct quote as we looked at each other i wore a shoulder holster i remember tucking my gun right next to me and consciously counting i've got 18 bullets i didn't know if we'd all be alive when people showed up everything made sense in that instant and i knew what happened that is so puzzling because I, I would love to, I would love her to extrapolate on that because like, what exactly does that mean? Like what vibe well, was she getting? It's, it's a very weird thing to say. And, and she's a very, she's a very quirky person. If you've ever seen her in this interview, um, she just, I remember her saying in this interview, I saw her in where she said he, he just had this like look on his face that she actually felt fear and felt like she might be protecting people. And that's why she was, trying to make sure she knew how many bullets she had. She had her gun at the ready. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, that's really wild. 
so when they bring the body upstairs, it's obviously really disturbing and, and everyone is distraught, especially of course, Patsy Ramsey, who's her mother. And she, she remarks, uh, what does she say? She says something like, God, you raised Lazarus from the dead. So raise my baby, something like that. And of course, you know, there's the reverends, like everyone's looking at him, like, <laughs> like can, can you, right? Like, oh, here's your moment to shine, bud. You finally yeah, can like, do I, something. I, I, I don't, I don't know what you want me to do here. So, so well, I mean, that had to be awkward for him in general. Cause like, he's like, God, I hope she doesn't start pointing to me in a second. Right. Saying, he's like, man, I really wish I didn't tell that story at church on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but but yeah, to bring to bring it all back to this is really disturbing and horrible. Um, Fleet White actually left the room and walked into the sparkling clean kitchen. Yeah, um, yep. to kind of just, remain just, composed. Just smell the pine saw. He's trying to re- remain composed because everything was just going to shit. I mean, it was it's such a hectic scene. Like every time I read about this part, I always get like a little bit of goosebumps cuz like it's so tragic. I mean, you have this mother who's like screaming for God's help. Agony. Like just complete agony. You have Fleet White who's screaming for an ambulance. You have these detectives, 150 detectives, and no, I'm just kidding. Like eight police <laughs> officers like scrambling around. Like it just sounds like such a chaotic scene and it sounds and then, the, you know, there's the Ramsey's friends who are all trying to, like, help, too. But how do you help in that situation? Like, this has got to be the saddest thing that they have ever seen in their lives. Oh, my God. Certainly. Like a lot. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, it's like, it's like, you know, their worst fear has come to fruition. Right. Finally. They're finally, like, everything is done. And now we've got you know, the body of a six-year-old the day after Christmas laying in front of a Christmas tree. I mean, it's just unreal. Heartbreaking. And, you know, up until this point, I mean, I can't speak for them, but I imagine there was some hope throughout the day. I'm sure there was plenty you know, of it. We'll, like, we'll give them the money. It's no big deal. That's like right. how much they our mortgage is, whatever. Right. We'll give them as much money as they want. And yeah, like, That's like our mortgage on one of our four houses. Like, who cares? Like, right. Like, you're surrounded by, you know, support systems and police officers. Like, it's going to be okay. But then... You see the body and it's not. And all of a sudden this turns from a kidnapping case into a murder investigation. Instantly. Immediately. And I bet you all the police are probably like, I imagine that they're scratching their heads being like, oh shit, man, we we really like should not have let people walk around this house. Well, yes. And also I think they were wondering how did we not know the body was here? Was she alive still? Of course, if you're ice cold, the, the chances are you've been dead probably like several hours. I always hate when, like, on forensic files, they say, like, someone calls 911, they're like, see if they're cold to the touch. And I'm like, oh, God. Oh, I hate that. Because, you know, like, they're, it's like their their mother or their girlfriend or their cousin or something. They're like, they're cold to the touch. It's like, oh, God. It's terrible. I know. It's heartbreaking. And this case just continues getting heartbreaking and infuri- infuriating. And Yeah, it's not good. So... Now that the body's been discovered, isn't that right around the time that um, John Ramsey's children <clears throat> from his first marriage? Well, um, this is like pretty quickly after the body was found. Um, you know, there's one thing I forgot, and that was she had duct tape over her mouth that John Ramsey took off. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, while this is going on, this is also in the same hour that John Ramsey calls his pilot. Oh, yes. So he called his pilot. Wasn't it at um, seven? Here, let me look it up. Because he calls him a few a few times throughout the day. <clears throat> right. So the first time he called his pilot was around 645 in the morning where he says, hey, there's been a kidnapping. Like, we're not going to be leaving anytime soon. So just, you know, hang on. Right. And then he calls him again at 140. And he says he wants to sorry he says to his pilot how long will it take to get a plane ready for atlanta which is where their original home is and yeah but not where yeah. they were going that day they were they were packing to go to michigan um that day but now he's on the phone trying to get to atlanta right and one of the officers can i read that one passage yeah of course okay one second and and just like a, a little bit of a side note too so when we when Lindsay and I get you know more into these things, when we talk about subjective evidence, this is kind of one of those examples because in pretty much everything I've read, the the phone call to the pilot has been used a lot of times as like evidence, you know, that John Ramsey was either like stoic or didn't care or wanted to get out of there, you know. But there's a lot of reasons. He has stated later that um he was just in shock and and wanted to be somewhere comfortable because you know yeah it's 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 very subjective but i mean on one hand it's like okay well i just found my daughter's dead body this house is going to be a huge crime scene i just want to go somewhere that is home but a lot of people viewed it as really insensitive and too quickly i mean this is 30 minutes after they found the body yeah, I'm trying to find this passage. I don't know why it's I just read it from it yesterday that basically the officer thought John was trying to leave the country. Like that's why and he tells him he's like you can't leave. And John just says, "Okay." Right. Like, yeah, we he's like we're going to need to talk to you. Like you there's stuff that you're going to need to take care of first. Yeah, like this is you know, really this is the beginning of the police investigation, honestly. Like if you really the way I look at it is that they found the the body and I feel like this is when they they really started to investigate investigate the case. Like this is when real police work happens and the first thing that they did right is tell John like, No, 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 you can't you can't leave. This isn't over and it's not gonna be for a while. You have to stay you have to stay around, you know. And this is also within this hour is when they start securing the house. Unreal. Unreal. Yeah very long afterwards so at this point the the ramses go to their friends barbara and whatever his face is fernie's house um and it's there that one of the detectives goes over there to get formal statements from them and i and i want to just say that there's a big difference between getting statements versus like a formal interview that takes place at a police station because this will become important later in this in the story that when detectives went to the Fernie's house, they just got statements from the family. Very like, what time did you leave the Christmas party? Like, what time did she go to bed? What happened when she went to bed? And this is when they talked to Burke Ramsey for the first time. So Burke Ramsey, he's nine years old at this point, and it is alleged that he, w- he had slept through the entire ordeal. 
Um, Lucky and so, boy. right. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, I mean, I'm sure he mostly just stayed in his room. I mean, he was, they, he, they did, you know, usher him out of the house to go to the Fernies early in, early in the day. But, um, yeah, this is just kind of like some quick statements and things like that. These are not a formal interview. You know, I always thought it was so crazy that the family could sleep through this, but knowing the house is 7,000 square feet, I don't know if you've ever been in a house that big, but it's like, I mean, that's insane. I don't even know if I've been in a house that big. If I'm now I'm thinking about it, it's just like, right. You can't, you can't hear someone scream on the other side of the house. It's so big. I mean, yeah, it's, it's truly, I always forget how big this house is because whenever I I go back to look into this, I'm like, how did no one hear, you know, this or that? But when you look at the layout of of the house, it's just bonkers. Like it's huge. It's like, you know, ridiculously, ridiculously big. Um, But within this time, so they they interview the the Ramseys again, not formally um, around two 35. And at this point, the house is completely empty and secured, but it's somewhere between two thirty and five o'clock when John Ramsey, um, uh, the story goes, he was talking about this with a friend of his who is an attorney, Mike Bynum. And Mike Bynum had told him that he needs, um, legal representation as soon as possible. So, it is within this time between two thirty and five o'clock that John um, starts speaking to his attorney friend. So within this deal, basically, Mike Bynum is it's seemingly you know talking to John about the legal aspects of this, and and John meets with him, and you know later on, and he becomes his lawyer. So this again is one of those subjective things that that people judge the Ramseys on very harshly especially Fleet White the fact that you know just a few hours after John Bonet was found that John Ramsey immediately lawyered up when John Ramsey talks about this though he says you know he was just talking to do it with a close friend and you know among his circle of friends he had many lawyers and so it was it was more of just quick advice um but as as we'll find out later, the fact that he lawyered up so early did impact this case quite a bit. Um, they and, also sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. They also hired a PI. Yeah, yeah. I don't know when they hired the PI exactly, but you and I have talked about that before. How the police didn't even know about it. Right. The police found out because they went to get a statement from Fleet White, and he said, "Oh, I." just told everything to the other guy don't you guys talk and he's they're mm-hmm. saying what do you mean the other guy he said you're the pi i thought you guys were kind of working together and you know that's kind of interesting because what that could be seen as is the family is hiring a pi because they know the boulder police doesn't have experience in um high profile kidnappings or a kidnapping gone wrong so they're trying to kind of get all their ducks in a row or what it could also be seen as is now anything the police find out is now a retelling of their original statement and it's all going to be compared to the PI's notes that are hopefully accurate. So it's just kind of interesting how you could kind of cast that in either light. Right, right. Like, and again, you know, like we've discussed, you know, previously, that's what makes this case kind of difficult is that you look at these like situations, you could just see them from 
from both both points of view, you know? Yeah. Um, so while John and, and Patsy are at the Fernies, I kind of want to uh, paint a scene. Um, so in Steve Thomas's notes, it says that Patsy, along with Mrs. Fernie and the Reverend who is still hanging out, um, are praying in the Fernie's house while John and John Fernie take a walk. Um, and this is a quote that is in Steve Thomas's case notes where during this walk, um, this is something that John Fernie had told police that John Ramsey just kept sobbing and saying, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Right. And when I first heard that, I figured like, I don't know if you've ever seen like a stoic person cry. Sometimes they're apologizing that they're crying. I was like, I'm so sorry. I can't get myself under control. And that's the exact thought that I had. Um, I think at the same time, right. A different light. I get, yeah, exactly. Because we don't know intent and we don't know guilt, you know, like, so yeah. Like when I start crying really hard, I tend to say that too. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm sorry. Like I'll get myself together kind of deal. Um, but it was put in the police notes and in, in the book who killed John Benet Ramsey, um the author does talk about that moment of you know was this a man who was stoic all day and then broke down privately to his friend or is this an admittance of guilt which it's impossible to know so why even bother speculating on that you know true so you know leading we're we're pretty much at the end of this day right now um and the the rest of this is, is mostly just you know, the, the coroner comes, they, the, the, they come to examine the body, the body's removed from the, the house and, you know, things like that. So as, as far as timeline goes, that's pretty much the end of what we know about December 26, 1996. Um, and, you know, like, I know that this is a lot to unpack, especially in the first episode, a huge timeline like that. I mean, so many things happened in such a, a you know, a span of a day that, it's hard. It's it's really hard to to go over it without elaborating on every single thing, you know. So, within the next episode or two, you know, we'll 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 start to like narrow in on on some of the things we talked about in this episode, specifically the ransom note. I know that everyone is very excited about about that. <laughs> Don't roll your eyes at me. Well, I mean, it's the ransom note is obviously a piece of concrete evidence, but. I, I mean, it's it's just so abstract, <laughs> essentially. Um, before we, you know, end things off today, is there any any last remarks that you have at the moment? I think um, this case being so high profile and so sensationalized, sometimes it's hard to come back to the fact that this case is really about a dead child. Right. This case is about fundamentally a tragedy. It's about a horrific horrible thing that happened that we're still as a nation not aware of or able to pinpoint down so well and you know like as for me like I make jokes when I'm uncomfortable and you know like we're joking a lot in this in this podcast and everything and that that can be kind of healing but we do recognize that this is a very you know tragic story and so many very people serious. were affected by by this yeah. i mean this didn't just affect the family and the people they knew this is, i remember my mom crying at john benet's murder i mean 
like people around the world were just glued to their TVs. And this is, you know, direct, this is 1996 directly after the OJ Simpson trial where, you know, the 24 seven news cycle on, on true crime things was becoming very popular. So, I mean, I remember my mom for like a week straight, just glued to the television Mm -hmm. and, you know, she would tell me like, oh, I hope they find the truth. And I mean, it just shows that this was like a really impactful case for everyone. It's true. And, and, and it's why a, we still talk about it. And it's a famous case. I mean, everybody pretty much knows, especially people who know true crime, but even people who don't, if you say the name Jean Bonnet, they know exactly what you're talking about. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people, you don't even have to be into the true crime to know who, you know, Jean Bonnet Ramsey is. I mean, it was just a really prolific case and it's still being talked about today. I mean, hence the podcast. So I really look forward to the next episode and I think we'll just keep it going. If you, if you liked this one, I guarantee the ransom note episode is going to be even better and uh, just keep listening, I guess. Subscribe. Is that what people do on podcasts? Subscribe, download, Smash, smash that subscribe button, send it to every single one of your friends and family members. Um, just become obsessed with us. Yeah, in a um, weird way. Well, maybe yeah, like well, it has to be like a little bit weird, right? We're making anyway. t-shirts. <laughs> oh, I thought about making t-shirts earlier. Put a pin in that, but we we might get a little ahead of ourselves. And our I already have our pan. logo tattooed on my wrist. Okay. <laughs> okay, look, 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 look! You think I'm joking? <laughs> Let the records show. There's nothing on her wrist. <laughs> All right. Well, this was a lot of fun, and I can't wait to keep doing it. So, why don't you sing us off, Lindsay? Goodbye.